Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Thank you, Nate, for leading us in worship that exalts Christ. He is all that we need. Sufficient for our salvation, sufficient for our living. Everything is in Him. Take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 6. As we continue in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves moving fastly, right? We're fast. Is that a word, fastly? We'll take it that way. Um, and this morning, we're, we get a look at a text, and the title of the sermon today is Sending Out the Twelve. And many of us know this commissioning story of these twelve uh, disciples who were sent to become apostles and, um, and the significance of that. But let me read the text for us, and I think you'll see what's happening here and just the joy what Christ is doing with these 12 unlikely men of God, right? It reads there starting in verse 7, and he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits and instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the morning and for the joy of the narrative. Jesus, to, to see your leading, your progression of the, of the kingdom of God, and calling not only these 12 men to be your disciples, but also to send them out and equip them in such a way that brings power, that confirms the message preached, knowing that these are, are your men, that these are your men with your message declaring the greatness of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us with the Spirit's discernment teaching us as we go through the text to see the beauties of the Word of God, that we may grow in our understanding, marvel at how great you are, and continue to understand exactly what you're doing as far as progression of redemption and salvation. And so we love you and ask that you be with your preacher. We pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. I want to start today's sermon by asking you a couple questions. Who do you trust the most? Who do you trust the most? And maybe a little bit ramping it up a little bit more here. Who do you trust to watch your children? Or who do you trust to watch your home when you go on vacation? Who would you trust? We come to a text this morning where you see this, not only the Lord being in control of all things, like he always is, sovereignty is throughout, but, but here he is passing the baton of a message of the gospel to 12 men to trust. Who would you trust to communicate a critical and important message that needs to be delivered to everybody else? Jesus chooses to trust maybe the most unlikely men with his most precious message as sent out messengers. He even elevates their, their status within the kingdom and being apostles. We have already seen in Mark's gospel how Jesus called his disciples and how they were to put down their nets. Most of them were fishermen and follow Jesus. And here at this point in Jesus' ministry, you, you have this kind of change as Mark continually to, to push us through, heading to the cross, understanding the significance of salvation. That's where everything is heading. We come to chapter 6 with what we saw last week with this whole idea of unbelief. And he commissions 12 to further the message. I don't know about you, but if I were to just listen to those first six verses, I think I would just, you know what, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe we should just stop. Stop the presses. But not so with our Lord. Not deterred by his appointed divinely message as far as progression of the kingdom. Jesus calls his disciples and points them and gives them power as an extension of the kingdom. These men, of course, were insiders of Jesus' life. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the healings. They've seen his hand heal, his voice speak. They've listened to the message of, of repenting that the kingdom of God is at hand to trust him. And it would be these men who Jesus would call to represent him as an extension of his ministry. These men will become apostles and do mighty things and many things for the Lord. And yet, at further glance in their lives, if you were to take a microscope, we can simply say this, these men were a mess, much like you and me. What follows in Mark, and what's pretty interesting, is that you see this commissioning in chapter 6, but, but in chapter 8 and, and following, you, you have these men who become very prideful, who become selfish, and they often fail to get the understanding of the message that Jesus wanted them to preach. You could say that they probably weren't very effect, effective, or, or they weren't, in some degree, 
maybe your greatest salesman, they weren't perfect or, for that matter, skilled. If anything, they were underbaked, a soft, gooey chocolate chip cookie. Can you tell I'm hungry? Yet here's the beauty of our Lord. When you think about the calling and the, just in the calling itself and calling these men and then making them apostles. The beauty of our Lord here is that Jesus uses flawed men and women for his kingdom. To accomplish his purposes, to accomplish his kingdom and spread his redemptive truth. I can't help but walk away as a shepherd just thinking it and rejoicing the fact that God calls these men, even though they are not perfect, to do the call and the work of the ministry. Paul reminds us of that. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look to the screen, verse 27 through 29, where he says there, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. And there's your answer. There's the reason why Christ chooses men who are defective because they can't boast in themselves. They can't even boast in their own uh, adequacies. They need to be fully dependent upon Christ. They need his authority. These disciples would become a powerful force to change the world because they are not acting, and that's the point, not acting in their own authority, but Christ. They act in the power and authority of Jesus Christ for his kingdom. And though this is contextually meant for the apostles, there's some implications for us that help us understand exactly what Christ is doing here. And we'll get to that like we normally do at the end of our sermon with some takeaways. There's a general implication for us as disciples in Christ to, to, to understand exactly what Christ is doing in commissioning these 12. For that matter, much of what is here is our responsibility as the church to, to mobilize and be an extension of Christ's work in the world. Like I said, we'll sort that out at the end. But let's turn our, our focus to these 12. And what you find out is that these are very purposeful, directed orders and empowerment for these apostles. And I think you can pull out at least five marks of these 12. These are the set ones. These are the ones that, that, that God uses to, to spread the message as well as to be a foundation for the church. And we notice first in verse 7 that there's a, a delegated authority that is giving to them. Look again at verse 7. It reads, it says, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. This word summon in here in the Greek is a very interesting word. It's, it, it, ha, it means to, 
authoritatively call somebody for the purpose of having them participate in what you've summoned them for. Does that make sense? So here you have Christ, who, is, who of course is divine, who is holy, who is righteous. He commands that these disciples that he's already called to be his disciples to come because he has a mission for them. And he demands their presence. It is to demand someone to come to your presence because of your authority, because of who he is, and demand that they participate in the command that he says. And so Jesus summons these 12, and, and it says in the text, in verse 7, that he sent them out in pairs. And the text doesn't say why he decided to send them out in, in, by twos. I think that you and I both can understand the, the joy of, of marriage or the joy of, of, of working together alongside somebody, the encouragement, the strength, the, the help that that individual has when, when two comes together. There's many times during the week that, that Nate encourages me in, in, in the faith and, and when walking, and, and, and hopefully I do the same to, to, to my brother as well, just continuing to work together for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the call. But he sent them out in pairs. I think another aspect of that is accountability. I think part of it is, is that Jesus wants them to understand that, that there's two of you sent for a particular purpose, and there's a reason for that, and that is to hold each other accountable for the message that they were given, that they would stay on task together. And then the text says this. What if I told you And gave that? them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus gives him his authority, his ability to have power over unclean spirits. It's pretty interesting just to, to think about this. When you immediately think about authority and unclean spirits, immediately in the text, it should jog your mind back to what? Chapter 5. Remember there that it was Jesus who gets out of the boat after calming the storm and lands on the on the side of the of the gal uh, of the Gentiles, excuse me, and he encounters a man who was full of demons, and Mark says that he has unclean spirits within him. I mean, that's the power that he's passing along to these twelve apostles. The ability for for for, for the demons to, to shut their mouths and to submit to the one who commands them to do things. They were given his authority, which also tells us something that they can't. He didn't ask them to go out about themselves, right? He didn't ask them to go about doing things according to their own power. And this is how beautiful our Lord is. He always supplies our needs, right? He's always giving. And in this case, he gives his power to these 12 to go out and have power and authority over unclean spirits. Delegated authority, power, only from Christ. When you think about how that filters down into our own life, even within the church, the pastor has no authority. You understand that, right? The church has no authority. The only authority or power that the pastor of the church has 
is by delegated authority because the word of God is powerful. It is Christ in his word that, that gives the, the power of his preaching. Man can get up here and wax eloquently about everything else, but if, unless there is, is power from Christ to put his hand on his truth, then it is powerless. God must provide his authority to the pulpit. He must supply his authority to the church or else it is useless. And just because you have the name church on the outside of your building doesn't make you a powerful church, does it? We're reminded of that, of, of churches within and even denominations who have done everything to avoid the things of the scriptures, and yet they think they function as a church, and they have lost their power because Christ removes the lampstand. He is the head of the church. He delegates his power. The greatest thing that a pastor can do is to pronounce, proclaim the authoritative word of God to your hearts. That's the joy of what we do every Sunday morning, is to get up here and exposit the word so that you can understand that it has supreme authority, that this is your authority. And it's wise for you to obey it and to follow it. When a faithful pastor preaches and teaches the word of God, God is kind to use that flawed man and give him delegated authority and shepherd his people. You think about that, same with missionaries. When they are sent out of the church, when, when, when the church rises up their best to send them out, there is a, a delegated authority for them to take the word of God and go out there and to preach and teach and to shepherd to represent Christ to others. And even you, when you think about this, you are a sent, redeemed soul to proclaim the gospel message in other people's lives to those around you. And it's amazing to see when you proclaim Christ to others and how the authority and the word of God and the spirit draws people, sinners, to truth where they repent and they believe. It's a humbling thing, isn't it not? Sometimes people think, well, who is your authority? Well, our authority is God. Our authority is Christ. He is our strength. He is our message. And God gives you and I the opportunity to be an example as one who was sent, commissioned to proclaim the gospel. Remember, that is the mission of the church in Matthew 28. All of that is delegated authority. Not our authority, but his. And he gave them power. Power over unclean spirits. I think this is intentional by Mark. I think he wants us to draw the connection of chapter 5 and chapter 6 with this whole issue of this unclean man. This is the type of power, no doubt, remember, we don't know, the text doesn't tell us where the disciples were. Did they land with Christ, or were they still in the boat when this all went down? But they definitely saw it and continue to see it throughout his ministry. That's the type of power that he's passing on to them. 
I think it's also important to have a fuller scope of the scriptures and understand that though this was relegated to the 12, this wasn't a, a permanent situation for the rest of the church. And why do I say that? Now, you're going to have different denominations that will preach get differently about those kind of things. But being textually driven, thinking about the text, if there ever was a section of scriptures for for the word of God to be preached in such a way to tell the people that you will have this power over unclean spirits would be Ephesians chapter 6, would it not? Where Paul tells us exactly what what our role is in the midst of demonic warfare and how to deal with the demonic world, spiritual warfare. And there's nothing there in that text in Ephesians 6 about casting out demons. And if anything, there's there's a more of a defensive stand to put on the armor of God and stand in faith and resist the the enemy, right? The devil will flee from you. And so understanding, and this is true throughout all of scriptures, that God is the one who gives the, the, the signs and the wonders and the powers to do them. And I guess you got to ask yourself the questions why. When you think about Moses, think about Elisha and Elijah. I mean, these men of God who are prophets spoke for God. And they had signs and they had wonders. All of that was to authenticate what? The message. And when the revelation is closed, you don't need that anymore, do you? Why? Because there's no more of of God-inspired words. It's all complete, sufficient in itself for us. So just a side note, as you think through your own theology of can we cast out demons or not, I think you have to deal with the text. I think you're going to have to look at Ephesians 6. You're going to have to see some of these things. This posture in James chapter 4 where you resist the, the devil and he will flee from you. Nowhere in scriptures do you see a ministry of demon chasing. You don't. You see the ability to stand firm in the faith according to the truth and resist the temptations of the enemy. That can be a side discussion, but something to stir your mind. There's a second mark of the apostles, and that there was provisional dependency. I mean, this is pretty interesting to me when you look at verses 8 and 9. This, instru- this, these, this is the packing list that he gives his apostles. Verse 8, he says, He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. He's sending them out. How many of you, when you are going to Costa Rica or if you're going across the seas, that you're just going to take a staff, what you're wearing, and your sandals? That would be absurd, Right? but there's a point in it. He instructed them, verse 8, that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt. I mean, how, how many of us travel without any money? But to wear sandals, I mean, he's kind to let us wear something for our feet. And then he added, do not put on two tunics. I mean, what is going on here? Well, very clearly, not only is he given him delegated authority, these, these men, but he wants them to be dependent upon him, right? If you wake up in the morning knowing that you don't have nothing, you have to do what? You have to depend on Christ for substance, 
and for his fulfillment. He, he totally wants them to be sold out to him. He wants their faith to grow. That's one of the joys of reading biographies and missionaries. You know, I think of, of, of missionaries who, who would just desire just to pray and ask the Lord to provide. I think of George Mueller, great missionary example. And what strikes me about George Mueller, he never sent out a prayer request as far as requesting any needs. He believed that God was going to supply. And one of his famous stories that we all recount is, is the fact that he was running an orphanage and had all these kids and, and he had no food. And so what does God do? He breaks down a, a milk truck right outside his doors. Which, by the way, no refrigeration in those days. The milk is going to go bad. Everything that's on that truck is going to go bad. And so, Mr. Mueller, can you have this food? I mean, the provision of God, to see the hand of God work, being totally dependent upon it. Too often, I think, in the Christian life, we become self-dependent instead of Christ-dependent. I think it's, it's, it's helpful for us to, to, to feel the strain of not having, knowing that we need to rely on him all the more. I'm not asking you to be stupid in that. I'm asking you to be faithful in that. Asking God to grow you in your dependency upon him. It reminds me of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And in that prayer, he says, pray this daily, Give us this what? Give us this day our daily bread. Like I say, I think that's kind of foreign for us. We very much live in an affluent area where our cupboards are full of food. God wanted them to be totally dependent on him and get this, not their supplies. Nothing wrong with a a fully supplied missionary sending him out, making sure that he's, he can do the work. But there's part of a rub of allowing the, the man and the woman of God to, to trust and be dependent upon God for the means of life. But why the distinction of one tunic? I mean, only one set of clothes. The answer is lies in their custom. When you looked up this up and, and understanding the difference in why and how they use tunics, to wear two tunics was to, to look at someone who had affluence. It was the idea of someone wearing two layers of clothing. It showed their importance. And so he's trying to teach them humility here to wear one tunic, to look to him to, by faith to provide, trusting the hand of God in the midst of, of ministry. And then there's a third mark of the apostle. This was contentment and discernment. Look at verses 10 and 11. It tells them to be content. He says, and he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Now, you're going to ask yourself, what, how does that teach me contentment? So I have no money. I have no, no food. You, you, you're welcomed into a town. You no doubt hopefully have a believer who is greeting you there. They show hospitality to you. You do the ministry within 
the city. And here comes Jesus' point. As you're preaching, somebody comes up to you with maybe a little bit more needs and resources, says, hey, why don't you come over to my house? My house is bigger. I got more food for you. Jesus says, hey, whenever you enter a house, you stay there until you leave that town when the ministry's over. Be content with the means that I supply you. Don't show preference. Don't show partiality. Don't just pack up thinking that it's greener on the other side. I've been overseas many a, year, many a times. I think last time I counted 11 times over in Russia. I've seen, you get outside of Moscow and it is barren land. Everything's in Moscow. It looks like L.A. But when you go to the outer parts of the cities, they still use an outhouse for the restroom. They literally use uh, a gas tank for the shower, which, by the way, is not, it's only heated by the sun. The accommodations, I mean, they really, what is it? I mean, we're used to a little bit more comfortable means, but, but in all reality, it, it kind of clouds the reason why you're doing what you're doing. We're living like they are living, and we're, we're, we're in the midst of ministry doing the things I remember one time somebody said, hey, can we put you up in a hotel? I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We wanted to stay with the people. We wanted to interact with, with them. And so the point is to be content. The point is to be content. To stay the course. You've got a mission, proclaiming Christ. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Stay the course. And when you think about it, really when it comes down to your needs, what do you really need? Now, I think I would dicker with God a little bit about the whole issue. I need all my books, right? But he's saying you only need one book. You only need the Bible. And you just need one pair of clothes. remember one missionary trip going over there. We were doing a Bible Institute and teaching about various things. And, and of course, I packed like I normally would pack. You have two or three sets of clothes. You got, you got plenty of undergarments. You got all this red. You got your hygiene stuff. And then you go to the house. You lug your luggage in there, and you realize that they don't have nothing. And so what do you do? You start giving away your stuff, Right? You want them, as you see their needs, to be able to love on them and encourage them. Following with contentment, verse 11 tells us that you must have discernment. And this is kind of an interesting uh, section of verses. He says and tells the apostles, he says, any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them Literally, judgment. Listen, if they will reject your message, if they don't want to come along, will not listen to you, take your sandals and you dust them off. Again, this is customary. It's showing to the, to the idea. We, we, we know that, that historically, 
the pious Jews would do this, especially when they walked through Gentile land, not wanting anything of the dirt that even Gentiles walk on to defile them. And so he says, shake it off the sandals. And it shouldn't be surprising. I think this probably happened quite a bit, I'll be honest with you. The only reason I say that is because we think about the parable of the sower and the seeds and, and, and the much rejection and the much abandonment of the gospel. That narrow is the way to life. And, and wide is the broad of destruction. And so this was an action of disassociating themselves with, with their actions, but it also points to the reality that the message that was rejected will be a judgment against their souls. I think we can parallel that with the thought of what Jesus said about don't cast your pearls before what? Before swine. And that's a fine line. I get it. I mean, we, are, we're, we want to proclaim the gospel. And, and if you're like me, I, I, don't, I don't take the first rejection. It just makes me a little bit more hard towards to pursue you, more, more desirous to go after you. But there comes a point where you must not cast your pearls before swine. I think that is spirit-led. I think that's discerning that whole thing. I think it comes to the point where they are mocking and ridiculing the message, mocking Christ, blaspheming him. Trust the spirit in that. But there can be a point for you to shake the dust off the soles of your feet. Doesn't mean somebody else doesn't come alongside. I mean, it's amazing to me what God uses in people's lives to break in their hearts. And somebody come back, come along, proclaiming Christ, and, and there's not rejection that time. Of course, we would expect what happens in verse 12. We expect them to be faithful preachers of the word, in this commissioning, they were called, in verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. They were called, in essence, to follow the script, to proclaim Christ's message. And we know that all the way back from Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, repent and believe. There was no changing of the message. There was no adaptation of the message. There was no changing in the message so that you can fill your pews. There was just a call to, to, for sinners to repent and to believe in Christ as Savior. And oh boy, the churches need to hear that today, do they not? I've told you many a times of visiting different churches sometimes, and, and what preachers usually do is they evaluate other preachers, right? You sit underneath it, you're trying to understand the text, what he's preaching, all that kind of stuff. Remember this one situation he had, this preacher had a huge gathering. They just per performed a great musical. It was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Christ honoring in, in the songs. The preacher gets up. Not expecting a sermon. I don't think anybody was expecting a sermon. But he just said, hey, I hope you enjoyed that. 
Hope you have a good day. If you have any questions about church, just right over there. They've got some information for you. I was literally, you've got to be kidding me. The message is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. The joy of, I try not to go out to those type of events alone. I had my wife with me there. She's able to calm me down, bring me back to my senses. And, 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 but it's just disheartening. It's disheartening. Oh, I get it. People don't like this message. People do not like to hear that they are a sinner and that they need Christ. We have a world that, that wants to go after this. They, we've got a world who does not want sin to be called sin, particularly their sin to be sin. They don't want any guilt from, from a holy God. But the message is to repent and believe. The message was clear, it was straight. It was a call to recognize that they need redemption, that they need to be saved. It was a message that convicted, that the Spirit used to convict their lives, to cause them to believe. Think about this. Not a lot of training here, right? Of course, they had living training, seeing Jesus do his thing, hearing Jesus preach. And yet they were commissioned to do the same, which tells me something about evangelism, really. If you know enough what it means to be saved, you'll know enough to share and proclaim the message of Christ. There's no easy believism here. There's no sloppy grace being dealt out. There's no message of having your best life now, if you get my reference. It was a message that you are a sinner, that you are a wretch, and that you need to be saved, and the only one that can save you is Jesus. They were faithful to preach. That's what I love about the book of Acts. You think about the Acts, it's actually the full title, but Acts of the Apostles. You, you think about all that they did Scripture points to the reality that they were men who turned the world upside down, not because of them personally, but because of the delegated authority and the message that they were faithful to preach. And then number five, they were given supernatural power. Look at verse 13. They were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil, many sick people, and healing them. Matthew adds that they were even raising the dead. All the things that Jesus has done up through Mark chapter 6. Of course, again, the message was backed up by the power, the reality of divine acts that only God can do. And so they were given natural power of casting out many demons and healing the sick. When it comes to credentials of being an apostle, Paul says it up this way in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. He says, the signs of the true apostle were performed among you 
with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. There they were, faithful men of God, desiring to be an extension of the kingdom. And it makes sense. Jesus conformed in his humanity, his ability to get his message out in calling these men and showing exactly what he's going to lead the church to do as well, to send them out and proclaim the message. Again, no, no apostles here on this earth, right? Canon's closed. No more inspiration of Scripture. No need for apostles. No need for any more prophets. The Word of God is sufficient. It's sufficient. Delegated authority, dependency on God, being content, having discernment, being a faithful preacher of the message, and supernatural powers. Tell you what, being equipped that way, those definitely were men that they could trust, right? That Jesus could trust. Jesus trusted these men to deliver the gospel to sinners. Jesus trusted these men to give them power and gave them his power over demons. Jesus trusted these men to deliver the saving message of the gospel. What's our takeaways from this? Like I said, you know, trying to find the implications in our own life. We're called, we're commissioned, we're, we're, we're called to be faithful to the message. That sticks. We're called not to change what God has, you know, qualified as redemption. We're also called what? To depend upon God. I mean, I think that's, that's us, that's another application. To have faith and knowing that he's going to supply. Knowing that he will give us our wants. No. He will give us our, our needs. Being content and having discernment. Absolutely. That applies to us today as well. Really, I think on this list, what qualified them to be apostles and backing up the messages which they preached was the supernatural powers. There's a lot of debate on that. But understanding through the scope of scriptures why they were given the supernatural powers was to believe in the message that was preached, gave authority, God's stamp of approval. So how will you do, Christian? Endurance? Absolutely, we need it. Will we run with our fixed eyes on Christ? Will we pursue his agenda, not ours? Will we be content instead of looking over the fence and seeing what I don't have? Will we trust him to supply our needs? Father, we thank you for the morning. Thank you for the joy of, of a narrative, of a text, and seeing your kindness to these men these apostles in which you've sent out, commissioned to be an extension, passing the baton. The joy of that is that they were faithful. As they preached and proclaimed Christ, you saved, Lord, and that continued to happen through centuries, 
to where we stand here today, where somebody was faithful to proclaim and preach the gospel to us. We thank you for your grace in that. And in turn, we understand our call to go make disciples, to proclaim Christ, to be faithful to the message, to trust you. And so we love you. The desire in all this, not only for the commissioning of the 12, but even for our lives, is that we too would be sent out once. Not for our glory, but for yours. So we ask that your kingdom grow. We ask, Lord, that your power be seen in such a way that people repent and believe. And we're going to trust you all the way. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.